Well, have you ever found yourself in a situation where the way forward was too uncertain, maybe even too scary, and so everything inside of you wanted to turn back? Have you ever gone up to the top of a water slide only to get up there and chicken out and then take that lone, long walk down the walk of shame? Anyone ever do the walk of shame? It's okay. It's a safe place. I've done the walk of shame. Have you ever been in a relationship and thought, you know what? Singleness wasn't so bad. It was better than this. Have you ever taken a job only to realize, well, this is not what I signed up for and you begin strategizing your exit. After God miraculously led the Israelites out of Egypt, they're standing in the promised land's parking lot. Right over the river is this land flowing with milk and honey, just abundance on abundance. And then they get word. There's giants in there, like giants. And God's people say, Numbers 14, 4, would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, yes, let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Why start the message like this? Because the Galatians, like the Israelites, have just experienced an Exodus-like deliverance from the law, but today they want to go back to Egypt. And whether you're conscious of it or not, you and I woke up this morning and our sinful inclination is to go back to slavery. And God brought you to church this morning to say, listen, no turning back. Open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Last week, God in verses 1 through 7 declared to us the infinite, eternal good news that because Jesus entered in all the way in to the flesh, to the law, to death, even to our hearts, we are no longer slaves. Anyone in amen? We're no longer slaves. Better than that, we're sons and daughters. Better than that, we are heirs. We are irreversibly set up to inherit a new earth and a new heaven and best of all, the very presence of God himself to dwell with us forever. Amen. I don't know what call or text you're waiting for in life, but that is the best news you have ever, can ever, or will ever hear. Through Jesus, almighty God considers you a child. You are his kid. You have a seat at his table. You have a room in his house. And everything that belongs to God, which is everything, is now yours in Christ. This life is the promised land's parking lot. And so there's no way we're going back to Egypt, right? Meet me in verse 8. Galatians 4, verse 8. These are the words God has for us this morning. If you're there, say there. The Holy Spirit, through the inspired apostle, writes, Formerly, when you did not know God, 
you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. Now, you know we're not going to read past a sentence that sweet without worshiping. Raise your hand if you, at least to some degree, would say, yeah, I know God. Not a trick question. Yeah, I know God. Yes, you are raising your hand because you know God, but underneath that, it's because, listen, you are known by God. And that phrase isn't referring to God's intellectual comprehension. He's omniscient. He knows everyone. When the Bible talks about this kind of knowing, it's talking about a particular affection. To be known by God means to be specially, salvifically loved by God. The great theologian J.I. Packer writes, to be known by God means I'm never out of his mind. He knows me as his very friend, as one who loves me, and there's no moment where his eye is off of me or his attention is distracted from me. There is no moment when his care falters. Most of us here today are here today because we know, at least to some degree, God, and you know God because to an infinite degree. God loves you with a particular predestining paternal love. And Paul tells the Galatians, okay, if that's true, if you know God better, you are known by God. Look back at verse 9. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Remember, we learned last week that the elementary principles of the world is stoichia, and it's the, it's the worldview that believes you get what you deserve. It's the worldview of cause and effect. When we bring it into our relationship with God, it means we think when our sinfulness goes up, our standing before God goes down. When our sinfulness goes down, our standing before God goes up. And God says in verse 9, that type of thinking is weak, worthless, and enslaving. Did you see that in verse 9? How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. Just a pastoral insertion because taking Sabbath is sexy again. Let me just say on the authority of verse 10, as a Christian, you do not need to observe the Sabbath. You know that. You do not need to observe a a Sabbath. With that being said, Jesus invites you and invites all of us into the gift of a full day's rest. But the purpose of that gift is for Jesus to further prove his love for you, not for you to further prove your love to Jesus. That's the difference. So enjoy the gift of Sabbath. I'm gonna Sabbath from noon today until noon tomorrow, but don't for a second let the Sabbath enslave you again. He's looking at verse 10. He's going, guys, this is getting bad. You're, down, you're observing days again. Months, seasons, years. Verse 11, I'm afraid that I have labored over you in vain. Now here, let me clear, clearly say, There are two types of people in the world, Christians and non-Christians. And today we see in Galatians chapter 4 that there are two types of Christians in the world. 
free ones and enslaved ones. In every church, there are two types of believers. Those are, there are those who are stepping further and further into freedom and those who are turning back to the law. And Paul's going to flesh that out. But first, we get to be kind of a fly on the wall as he gives just one of the sweetest pastoral addresses to the Galatians in all of Scripture. Verse 12, he says, Brothers, I entreat you, I'm pleading now, become as I am, meaning free in the gospel of grace. For I also became as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and though my condition was a trial to you, you didn't scorn me or despise me. But you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Guys, let's be a church that welcomes people who walk away saying, they've received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Let's open up our MCs and our homes where people walk away going, they treated me like I was an angel from God, like I was Christ Jesus himself, amen. Verse 15, so what has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Many scholars believe Paul had an eye condition, maybe going all the way back to his conversion where the resplendent radiance of Jesus' glory literally blinded him for three days. So Paul says, gosh, at one point you guys were ready to rip out your eyes and give them to me, but now these Judaizers have convinced you that I'm your enemy. That's verse 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Verse 17. They, the Judaizers, make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. Catch that. Legalism never makes much of Christ. Apparently, it makes much of the legalist. Legalists take a personal conviction and make it into a universal command. Legalists take something that they excel at and impose it on others, so that when other people fail to measure up to the bar the legalist has reached, the only conclusion is that the legalist is spiritually superior. Well, I just don't think Christians should have tattoos. Yeah, says the person who has no tattoos. And who's trying to use their lack of tattoos to strong arm themselves into a sense of spiritual superiority. Legalism never makes much of Christ. It always makes much of the person or the church or the denomination who is fulfilling the law that they are now trying to impose on everyone else. Verse 18, it's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. Like when Paul says, I've heard of your faith, your joy, your love. Not only when I'm present with you, now just hear the pastoral tone, my little children. For I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I'm just perplexed about you. Verse 21, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, you who want to go back to Egypt, do you even listen to the law? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. 
You see, guys, the Judaizers' whole thing was, we're the sons of Abraham. That's first century talk to say, we're legit. We're the, first, we're the true sons of Abraham. And if you want to be a son of Abraham, and then you need to be like Abraham. You need to be like Abraham's son. You need to get circumcised. And Paul says, this is a great place for like a, oh, ready? Paul says, oh yeah, you're a son of Abraham, but Abraham had two sons. Got him. Got him. One by a slave woman, one by a free woman. Verse 23. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, that's the law of Moses, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to present Jerusalem or the Jewish people for she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. And God's people said, huh? One of the reasons I love our church is because we just go line by line through the scriptures. Guys, if I was given the choice of what to preach this morning, this wouldn't have made my top 100 list. Just being honest. And yet, we're, we rejoice in that because what I didn't see initially, what is initially confusing, is actually amazing. What God is doing here is taking the Galatians and all of us back to Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Just ride with me for a second. In Genesis 12, by God's grace, God comes to a pagan named Abram. Abram is not living for God. He's not worshiping God. And yet, by grace, God comes to him and says, hey, leave your country and I will bless you. I will bless you so much that you will in turn bless all the nations. And Abraham, or Abram, trusts God and leaves his home. Then in Genesis 15, God comes to Abram again and says, okay, this time, look up to the sky. Do you see all those stars? I'm going to give you more descendants than stars. And Abram believed God, and Romans says, and that was counted to him as righteousness. Next chapter, Genesis 16, catch this, is 10 years later. And Abram and his wife have how many kids? Zero. We've been waiting 10 years. And so Sarah's like, okay, we got to get things moving here. Abram, go sleep with our slave, Hagar. She can bear you a child, and then God can give you many descendants. God can fulfill his promise through him. And so Abram sleeps with the slave, Hagar, and she gets pregnant with Ishmael. And side note, what Abram and Sarah did to Hagar is wicked. God hated what they did. And if you ever want to see God's compassionate care on those who've been victimized and abused, read Genesis 16. The pre-incarnate Jesus comes to Hagar and just redeems the most broken situation. The next chapter, Genesis 17, is 13 years later. So God comes to Abram, changes his name. You're now called Abraham. And Abraham's like, hey, yeah, we, we've actually got a child. Ishmael, and God says, that wasn't my plan. 
That was never the plan. That was you trying to control and secure my promise. I'm going to bless Ishmael because I'm merciful. He's going to be a mighty nation, but that wasn't the plan. The promise was that you and Sarah would have a child. It's through his bloodline that the Messiah will come and bless the whole world. And so a few chapters later, Genesis 21, Abraham is 100 years old. Can you imagine getting a, a party invitation for a baby shower from your 100-year-old neighbor? Big, gross, but I'm definitely coming, right? <laughs> Isaac is born, and God's promise is finally fulfilled. Okay, so do you see what the Holy Spirit is telling us here in Galatians 4? He's saying all of this, it's true, but it's also an allegory. It's also foreshadowing of what's happening in Galatia. God gave the promise of unconditional grace to Abraham and Sarah, and though they believed God, and that was counted to them as righteousness, eventually, 10 years later, they turned back. Instead of resting and waiting in God's promise, they tried to assist God. They tried to strengthen God's promise with their own human contribution, and that led to slavery. And God is saying that when we turn back from the gospel of free grace, we're doing the very same thing. We're trying to assist God. We're trying to take his promise and, and with our own human contribution, strengthen it, and that will only lead to slavery. So how do we not turn back? Point one, we rest in God's promise to be saved. If I, could have, if I knew this, if I could have spoke with Abraham and Sarah, I would have just come to them and said, guys, just rest. Just wait. God is going to give you the descendant he promised. They're going to number more than the storms. Just rest in that. I know it's been 10 years, but if God said it, he will do it. If God spoke it, he will fulfill it. I can't talk to Abraham and Sarah, but I can talk to you. And I can talk to me, and God is talking to us, saying the same thing. Rest. If God said it, God will do it. Which begs the question, do you know the promises you have to be saved? The heartache that would have been spared if Abraham and Sarah had just rested in the promises of Genesis 12 and 15 and the heartache and anxiety and depression and frenetic lack of peace that would be spared in this room if we would just rest in our promises. Like Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what? You will be saved, not might. Not hopefully, you will be saved. Rest in it. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not most, all unrighteousness. Just rest in that. Just sit in that. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this. When God says, I am sure of this, you can be sure of this. That he who began a good work in you is faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. 
Rest in that. 1 Thessalonians 5.24, he who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. Romans 8.38, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor sin nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Rest in that. Or turn back to the law and try to crowbar yourself into that. Those are your options. Rest or work. Grace or law. D.A. Carson tells the story of two Jews talking the day before the Passover. One guy's like, dude, did you hear? God is going to judge Egypt tonight. He's going to kill all the firstborns in the lamb but he's going to spare ours. He's going to pass over our homes. All we have to do is put a little blood of a lamb on our doorpost. It's amazing, right? How merciful is God? Are you going to do that? And his friend says, I don't know. You really think God's going to do that? All of Egypt? And I mean, what's what's the blood thing? Is that weird just to me? Yeah, I guess I'm going to do it but I don't think I'm as hyped as you are. Question, whose firstborn child was spared? Answer, both. Why? Because God's mercy flows not through the confidence in the promise, but the faithfulness of the one who made the promise. Christian, you have to know this. You will be saved, not by the certainty of your faith, You will be saved not by the clarity of your faith or the intensity of your faith. You will be saved by the object of your faith. His name is Jesus. And I need no other plea. It's enough that Jesus died and he died for me. For Abraham and Sarah, after 10 years of trusting, they didn't see any movement. And so they try to assist God's grace through human contribution. It leads to brokenness, slavery, and death. And if you're looking at your life, if you're looking at your faith, if you're looking at your walk with the Lord and you're saying, okay, nothing's happening, or at least it's not happening fast enough, please don't take matters into your own hands. Trying to assist God's promise of grace with cleverly devised strategies of law-keeping will only lead to slavery and death. Instead, you just rest on God. You just wait on God. And you will be saved. Listen, Vertical Church, no turning back. Here's the question, though. How? How do we rest in God's promises? Look at verse 27. For, ground clause, it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the one of those who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. Here, the Holy Spirit quotes Isaiah 55 verse 1, that's what was just quoted, and says, 
This text is not just about Sarah waiting for Isaac. It's also about you, Galatians. It's also about you, Vertical Church, waiting for your salvation. And what, and what is Sarah supposed to do while she waits? Do you see it in the text? Rejoice! Break forth and cry aloud! God is telling us today, instead of turning back to law-keeping, rule-following, acceptance by performance, Christian, rejoice in God's power to be saved. Sarah is supposed to rejoice, do you see this, not in her pregnancy, she's barren, not in her labor, she's not in labor yet. She's supposed to rejoice in God's power to fulfill his promise despite her current situation. God says, Sarah, even though you're barren right now, you start singing, sister. Even though you're not in labor, and I know you want to be, break forth and start celebrating. Why? Because I've promised the children of the desolate one, that's you, Sarah, will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Translation, the way we rest in God's promises is by rejoicing in God's power to fulfill those promises despite our lack of progress, despite our current situation. Guys, I've been following Jesus now for 11 years, and there are so many places in my life that are just so barren, so broken, And if I look to them, it's only going to lead me back to the law to try to crowbar those things into transformation. And God is saying, no, no, you just start rejoicing. The true way change comes is when we rejoice in God's power and willingness to fulfill his promises despite what we're actually seeing. That's Isaiah 55 verse 1. It's the difference between a fence and a feast. I don't have horses. I had a pony. His name was Buddy, and he was a bad pony. I don't have horses, but we all know horses are notorious for getting around a fence, right? Horses have this uncanny ability to go over the fence or under the fence or around the fence. It's almost impossible to keep a horse close by using a fence. So how do you do it? You give them a big pile of apples. You give them a feast, and you probably don't even need the fence. Those horses are going to be right there on the feast. The feast will keep them. And Christian, when it comes to your life, don't focus on the fences. That's turning to law. Focus on the feast. That's turning to God. Rejoice in God. Rejoice in God's willingness and power and ability to save and sanctify you. How do you get someone who's hooked on Taco John's to stop eating Taco John's? You can tell them, bro, there's like needles in that. And you'll be like, needles are apparently delicious because I love Taco John's. How do you get him to, commands don't work, stop doing that. More information doesn't work. Dude, there's rat poison in that. The only way you get him to release his grip on Taco John's is you give him Chipotle. You give him a superior pleasure. And all of a sudden, it's like, well, what is Taco John's? Guys, God and his promise is the superior pleasure. 
And the way you enjoy the promises is by rejoicing in God's willingness and ability to actually come through on the promises even when you don't see much happening around you. You know, some Christians, we have three accountability groups and, oh yeah, this bro's calling me twice a day to make sure I'm... Okay, those are fences. Those might be wise, but that ain't the feast. What your soul needs, what my soul needs is the feast. Jesus himself, the gospel of grace. So sit in his presence and listen to his promises in this word. That's why we read our Bible. Not because you got to read a Bible because you're a Christian. No, because you need a feast, a soul feast. And the real risen Christ wants to speak to you promises through his word. It's why we go through life all day, every day, just doing normal things of every day, but with a tangible awareness that Jesus is here. That's the feast. It's pushing all your chips in moment by moment that God will come through on what he has promised me. Despite that failure, despite that fall, God will come through. And that actually frees you up to love others, love life again. And love God. Vertical church, no turning back. Verse 29. The Apostle Paul says, But just at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. Wasn't just happening back then. So also is it now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. In Genesis 21, after Isaac is born and weaned, probably two or three years old, Abraham and Sarah throw a feast for him. And it says Ishmael, probably 17 years, is in the corner mocking him. And Sarah sees that and says to Abraham, what Paul quotes here in verse 30, cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. And again, Paul is not saying what they did is okay. It's not. It wasn't. He's simply saying that that war is still happening today. And if Hagar and Ishmael represented slavery to the law, Judaizers, legalists, God is telling the Galatians and God is telling us, cast out those who want to bring you back to the law. You could say point three, remove man's pressures to be slaves. And isn't that the whole tenor of the book of Galatians? Remember, the book begins with Galatians 1.8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should come to you with a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be anathema. Let him burn in hell. And we read that and we typically think that the false gospels are coming at us from the left, the gospel of the liberals. Galatians isn't written to protect us from the gospel coming from the left. It's, protect, it's written to protect us from the gospel coming at us from the right, the gospel of the legalists. And verse 30 says, doesn't, doesn't say, okay, just agree to, get a, agree to disagree. Just try to, you know, live peaceably with each other. It says, no, no, in the same way Abraham and Sarah kicked them to the curb, 
You should remove any person or pressure from your presence that is trying to bring you back to the law, to law-keeping, to acceptance by performance. So, one, radically remove outside pressures. Judaizers for Jesus are a dime a dozen today. Many of the best-selling Christian books, most listened to preachers and podcasts are legalists. And we love it because we are legalists. We have a legal spirit. And so we're like, okay, just tell me what to do. Just give me the list. I'll do it. If that's what makes God happy. And so if there's a book or a teacher or a podcast, if they give you the impression that God's love and acceptance is based on your behavior rather than the perfect behavior of the perfect son of God, you need to kick that resource across the room. Get that out of your life. If you are told to do things, not to increase your enjoyment in Jesus, but to increase Jesus' enjoyment in you, get that out of your life. That's bringing you back to the law. Now, to be clear, we're not afraid of to-do lists. The Bible is full of imperatives and commands that we Christians are to be about, but we do them for sanctification, not salvation. We do them to grow in intimacy with Christ and imaging of Christ. We don't do them to be saved. The only thing we do to be saved is repent and believe. Amen. We are saved by grace and grace alone. Number two, ruggedly resist inside pressures. Either consciously or subconsciously, each of us have built our own laws that we think we need to keep in order to stand blameless before God. Each of us have different things we think we must do. And Galatians 4.30 says, stop it. One of my self-made laws in seminary was Bible reading. I believed in my bones that in order for God to love me, I must read my Bible every day. And Bible reading has just been one of those things that's always come really, really easy for me. Um, and so one of my mentors noticed that this was a law that I had set up in my heart. And he said, Chris, I want you to not read your Bible for an entire month. Now, for 99% of Christians, that's the worst counsel you could ever give. But for this Pharisee of Pharisees, when it came to Bible reading, I needed to resist the pious, prideful, enslaving inclination to keep the law that I had set up in my heart. What do you feel like you must do in order to make God smile? The spiritual breakthrough you're waiting for may be in your refusal to do that. The spiritual breakthrough you're waiting for isn't you finally being able to do it. It's you're finally saying, I'm not doing it. Here's the question, you guys. Are you moving through life stressed about an upcoming job performance? Are you moving through life feeling the self-accusing thoughts that come at you in the middle of the night? Are you burdened with that habitual sin that you just can't seem to get out from underneath? Do you walk around with a low-grade, pervasive spiritual guilt always gnawing away at your joy? Do you move through life like there's just this oppressive, overshadowing, invisible blanket of shame 
Do you feel like you are constantly under the microscope of God and others and yourself? Do you feel like you are um, always anxious, always burdened, always wondering what other people think, always trying to keep up appearances? Loved one, all of these things are subtle attempts of turning back to the law. And the only thing that will deliver you from all of that, all of those enslaving feelings, is verse 31. So brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Notice God doesn't tell you what to do. He tells you who you are. You are not children of the slave, but of the free. There are two types of Christians in this church. Free ones and enslaved ones. Those who are turning to Christ and enjoying the freeness and the fullness of the gospel. And those who are turning back to the law. And God brought you to church this morning to say, you are free. You are free, not because Isaac was born, but because another impossible child was born. His birth was impossible, not because his mom was too old, but because his mom was too young. She was a virgin, and virgins can't give birth. But the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary. She conceived a child who grew up and set all the slaves free. Free from the punishment of sin, free from the pleasure of sin, and free from the power of sin. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. In the late 1800s, headhunters inhabited the jungles of Assam in India, and missionaries were trying to reach the Garo people, people who were considered bloodthirsty savages. The Garo people lived in some of the most dense and dangerous jungle. It was almost impossible for missionaries to reach. Nevertheless, some missionaries from the Welsh revival came down, shared the gospel, and a Garo man named Naksing, along with his family, gave their hearts to Jesus. It's reported that the chief of the village heard about it and summoned Naksing, his wife, and, all, and his children, his two children, in front of the entire village to renounce publicly his faith in Jesus or be executed. Given an opportunity to recant, he replied with the words that were later set to the melody. You know it. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Turning. Then the chief ordered his men to execute the children in front of mom and dad. To which it's reported, that Naksing said the second verse to that song. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, 
still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back, no turning back. The chief then gave the order to kill wife, which the men did, and they gave him one more chance. If you do not recant your faith, we will kill you right now. He's saying the last line, or he said the last line. The cross before me, the world behind me. The cross before me, the world behind me. The cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back, no turning back. Chief's men executed him right there in front of the entire village. But most amazing, the report, the missionary report says that the chief was so deeply moved by the family's faith that he concluded this Jesus must be real and he must be the Lord. And over time, not only the chief, but the entire village came to Christ. Vertical Church, that family knew and this family needs to know that following Jesus is about not turning back. Not turning back to our sins, not turning back to unbelief, and certainly not turning back to the law. This week, rest in God's promises to be saved. Rejoice in God's power to be saved despite what you're seeing and remove and resist every pressure that would make you a slave again. Amen.